What's up, Gorilla Social Workers? This is the Gorilla Social Work Podcast, your crackerjack clinical insurgents pitting evidence against anecdotes with your hosts, the Scarlet Lover, Jeff Moore, and yours faithfully, Mace Warren. Jeff and I are both forensic psychotherapists that specialize in the clinical treatment of folks involved in the criminal justice system. We love sharing our misguided musings with all of you, and we thank you so much for your ongoing listenership. Today, we sit down with a return guest, the Canadian Crippler, the Yukon Yagatan, the Ontario outlaw himself, Matt Barnes, host of the Social Work Me podcast. The Social Work Me podcast is a show for social workers, counselors, psychotherapists, and anyone in the mental health profession, as well as anyone looking for more information on improving their mental health and overall wellness. We really enjoyed our conversation with Matt, and we hope you do too. If you like what you hear, feel free to wait until the five-star rating leaves her desk unattended and computer unlocked, open her word processor, and select the autocorrect option. Replace the word the with you hag and have fun watching her scramble to get IT to troubleshoot. And now, on with the show. live i know we're live now we're live now we're live so so you were asking about the black eye right yes okay you know what here's what i've noticed about this black eye effect is uh (laughs) is there is no there's no good answer for it there's none like there's no answer that you can offer that somebody doesn't have a counter to that as to why you're full of crap and that something else happened. <laughs> like right? a rebuttal? Or right, like a, right, right, right. Yeah. So like, um, okay, so like, well, ultimately, just long story short, we'll keep it a mystery as a result of that because <laughs> I'd rather keep people guessing because the real story is pretty unremarkable, right? But this is what I thought about. This is what I thought about. I was thinking, okay, because if you say, and I'm wondering what people want to hear, what people want to hear when they ask about it. I mean, do you want to hear that, Somebody, I saw a damsel in distress. Yes. And I intervened. Okay. <clears throat> Told that story at least two times. And they're oh, come on, dude. What's the real reason, bro? I'm like, okay, not acceptable, right? And then uh, something that's actually happened to me. Uh, you guys ever heard of uh, allergy shiners? No. Okay. It's a real no. thing. It's a legit thing. I got it when uh, I had a, it, it was a, um, certain because i'm allergic to dogs like i have poodles but they're hypoallergenic right but certain dogs like um like a nita's pitbull for example like every now and then when i see it it'll lick my legs and i get hives all over my legs immediately like Mm. no non-stop but i've had other dogs um my buddy had a uh it's called a weimarinen and licked my face got all up in my face and i got a swollen eye from it and you know you just i backed off took some benadryl woke up the next day Black, Black eye. eye, right? I'm like, what the hell is this mm. from? And then my allergist said, oh, yeah, those are allergy shiners. They exist, right? So I told that story. No, no, nice story. That's all you got? That's all you got for me? I'm like, okay. Domestic violence. <clears throat> okay, domestic violence, yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. I'm like, I fell down the stairs? Like, I mean, what do you want? You're I not going to give us the real reason? No. There's The, the thing is, is like, <laughs> even if I told, what if yeah. one of those were the real reason, Right? 
It would be unacceptable anyway. There's no answer for it. I think I'd, ex- I'd, I'd I'll accept whatever you want to tell me it was. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with less history, more mystery. I like that. I'm <laughs> gonna keep it mysterious. Yeah, it's like it, you don't kiss and tell. Yeah, when it comes right. To the way you earn your yeah. black eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I will tell you though. Yeah. Um, Jeff and I, Jeff and I were doing the rounds one time with uh, with presenting to prospective referral sources. And um, didn't I have dual black yeah. eyes? Dual yeah. black eyes at that time, right? Wasn't that but, from a cheerleader? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was from a cheerleader. Yeah. By the way, really sensitive eyes. So, I mean, that's, that's, that sounds like a story I want to hear. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the cheerleaders? Yeah. So, uh, did, did you know that, Matt? I used to be a cheerleader. No. Oh, yeah, yeah. National champion. By he the was way. the top of the pyramid. Did hold him up? Yeah, yeah. That I was. I never oh. stood on top of a pyramid ever. <laughs> Or did that? That'd be yeah. really dangerous. <laughs> although, although my team, we were, we go to, uh, like, uh, we used to go to national championships all the time. Um, and there was an individual stunt routine. So you and a partner and, uh, yeah, the, the one year that I entered the, uh, individuals, I'll, I'll let you guys guess which place I got. And it wasn't second third (laughs) first place (laughs) baby you know what they make you do though they what they make you do is they make you they make you uh relinquish your trophy to the school did you know that no yeah i when i got it well it's not not about you it's about you did it for weber state no i did it for me (laughs) (laughs) how'd you get the black eye and i and i really didn't even do it for my partner i did it solely for me like yeah so i was having conversations with her about like Okay, I'll keep it at my house for six weeks, then you keep it at your house for six weeks. Nope, I had to give it over to the school. And uh, I was like, wait, what? I have to. <laughs> it was so stupid. But when they, when you're throwing them uh, up in the air, they'll spin down and they're they're kind of taught to tuck their arms, you know? And so when they tuck their arms, their elbows obviously are still doing their thing. So I got one like right on my nose, like right on the bridge of my nose. And then I got two mm. black eyes of that. I was bleeding all over the place. But then, yeah, two black eyes of it. And then we're trying to like promote our company to like referral sources. And he's looking like he needs anger management right. therapy, you know? And so what I did was is I, I thought, okay, I'll use this as an opportunity for a segue to a joke. And I said, we even do domestic violence classes. And I took, <laughs> oh, and, geez, yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> and I took an experiential course in domestic violence, you know, survivor training. And uh, that's why, you know, that explains the black eyes. I made that joke. What three times? Yeah, never. Every laughed. time crickets. Yeah. I'm like, no one Damn. ever laughed. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff's like, you need to stop making yeah, that joke, you dude. Quit with that joke. <laughs> <laughs> it never, yeah. it never really, yeah, it doesn't land. Really, yeah, yeah. It never really caught any steam. Yeah. I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In People the moment, get all serious about it. It felt yeah. right in the moment, you yeah. know. Felt yeah. right in the moment. If you don't take risks. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. That was my claim to fame when I was in college. So, cool stuff. Mm. Do they have cheerleading in Canada? They do, but it's it's not as big as the states. No, it's, uh, like you guys have big competitions and like high high school cheerleading is a big deal in the states. Yeah, I, I don't think it's like, it's not like that here. Yeah, at least at the high school I went to. Well, they didn't have they had that next Netflix special with cheer on there. Yeah, bring I was it on or no? Oh no no no! It was called Cheer. It was it was like oh, a reality yeah. show. Oh yeah, it showed like legit cheerleaders doing their thing. Hmm. I always wanted to watch it and like scrutinize them, you know. 
Like if you're a tattoo artist, watch it, Ink Master. Yeah. <laughs> I never did though. Yeah. <laughs> never got I was no, like doesn't, I did, I, doesn't sound compelling. I thought about it for a second, then I thought about I couldn't live with myself if I watched this. Yeah. Like, like I could be doing other things. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. For sure. So they don't have like him. a they don't have like a uh because we here we have like the Dallas that's Jeff's team, by the way, the Dallas Cowboys. But they don't have like and the Dallas cheerleaders are pretty famous. They're the most famous. Yeah, America's sweethearts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you hear that there was a a recent settlement with them because one of their, I think it was the coaches or administrators were peeping on them or something. Oh, really? Yeah. No. They got like some $2 million. Oh, wow. Seems like a mm. low number. $2 million? No, but yeah. I, yeah. That's, I didn't hear about that. Yeah. Oh. Crazy. So, but, uh, but yeah, they have like the, the Maple Leafs. Do they have a cheerleading section and they're on ice skate? Dude, you guys could do that no. if you got like, Okay, I'm just saying you could get figure skaters, right, to do cheerleading on top of uh, and come out in between the things mm. and do like those spins and stuff, and, <laughs> right, and do cheerleading instead. Yeah, why not? Right, dang, May- maple leaf. <laughs> I yeah, I don't not like that idea at all. Right, thank you. The maple leaf. Well, you yeah, you just call them the cheerleaders. Maplelets. The maplelets. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I've been watching a show on Netflix um, based in your neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Murder Among the Mormons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Have you guys seen that? I, I haven't watched it. I see it. It's in it's in like the Q thing. But no. Yeah. Is it about is it something about cartels or is that is that it's no, it's about um, <laughs> and I guess in 19, 1985 in Salt Lake City, there was like three bombings. Um all because of these documents in the Mormon church um, that they didn't want to get released. Do you guys know about this? Yeah. I watched the, so there was a, so basically they, um, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. Do you care about spoilers? I figure, I feel like spoilers, spoiler alerts should last one half hour after the release of this. I still get mad when people spoil game of Thrones for me. I'll watch it one day. Uh, okay so because you can't you can't really get it so anyway um this guy uh what's his name matt i watched this a while ago what's the guy's name he's out of the prison i don't know i've only seen the first episode so far but they're it's they're all like historian document collectors and they yeah so Oh, the guy that found the golden plates? No, 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 no. That's Joseph Smith. We know that guy. Yes. We know that guy well. Um, Okay. Let me, here, give me, let me look this up here really quickly. It's not those brothers that are on death row right now, right? No, 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 no. No. Um, Okay. Uh, Murder Among Mormons. This is from Wikipedia approved, so you know it's accurate. Murder Among the Mormons is an American true crime documentary television following Mark Hoffman. So if you if you looked on O-Track. I've heard that name. If you Got looked you. on O-Track, you can yep. look up Mark Hoffman yep, right now. Yep, yep, uh, One of the most uh, notable forgers in history who created forgeries related to Latter-day Saint uh, movement. Uh, is this a salamander thing? Yeah. yeah. Oh, so yeah. Salamander okay. paper. Okay. So, okay, yeah, I'm with so it. So basically, um, now, now what's kind of fascinating about this is, you know, they kind they 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 kind of tell you what's going on throughout this, but um, he and there's a whole I didn't know this existed. This was this was what was cool to me is I didn't know there was like 
historic like historic document collectors. I didn't know that existed. Mm-hmm. And then also where they find documents is pretty wild because sometimes they just say, "Yeah, I found it in this old library in between these books, like the pages of this book and then mm-hmm. some document, you know." And uh and basically they get authenticated using like all kinds of crazy testing and then the person's supposed to make a bunch of money, right? So a lot of this had um, a lot of these document collectors and historians who were talking about their relationship with Mark um, and just how like what a rock star he was as far as just finding documents. Right. Collector. Yeah. And um, and then wackiness ensues. But the bombings had to do with I mean, again, this is where the spoiler alert comes in is they kind of discovered that there was forgery happening. So like the salamander letter didn't even exist. He just wrote that. Mm -hmm. He's really good at like mimicking people's handwriting. Yeah. Yeah. And then aging it, which I think they did that on purpose because you're the whole time you're like, you know, really quickly what happened. But then you're like, how the hell did he do it? Like, how did he fool all these machines and all these experts into believing that this happened? And then, yeah, next thing you know, they, hmm. they were, he's trying to cover that up and trying to blow people up, which I mean, like peripherally who, aware of it. who knew I saw it on forensic files forever ago and you had 30 minutes and this was, I think it's like a four part series, right? Yeah. Three. I think it's three. I'm, I'm three? middle of the way through it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so definitely go to the end because you, you finding out how he does it is actually pretty cool. Um, mm. but yeah, on forensic files they did they did it in like half hour i was like oh that's cool so i kind of knew about it before yeah but yeah it's worth a watch for sure it's a fascinating yeah, story word. i love Watching jeff the, did that have to do with the lds cartel well, you know what i'm talking about though no i don't know anything the, about those, the lds cartel no it wasn't the lds cartel <laughs> i was joking about that but the like lds people got gunned down by cartel members in mm. mexico there's this mormon community in mexico and like it was a couple of years ago just some I don't know. Just a couple Mormon families got like legit gunned down by some cartel members. I was wondering if they made a documentary about that. It's like, oh, freaking crazy. no, I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, it was bad. Was yeah. it because they were LDS or just because they were people? I don't know. <laughs> they should do a documentary. <laughs> yeah, if we had a documentary out yeah, there, yeah, we then know. we know what happened. Yeah. Lazy bastards. <laughs> yeah, it's like someone else's fault. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I'd read about it. I was watching it. it with my wife, though, and, and uh, my wife's a therapist, too. She works a lot with kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she went down the rabbit hole of the Mormon church and Warren Jeffs and polygamy. And it, oh, my wife's huge into Warren Jeffs. Yeah. That, is she? Oh, yeah. Mm, 69 brides. Like, how did he land right. on that number? Uh, but, well, I have no idea. Yeah. It yeah, couldn't have been a coincidence. But, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it sounds like they're, she was telling me um, that they're trying to decriminalize polygamy in Utah. Really? Yeah. Hmm, At I, least the church is. So, oh, so not, not the mainstream church. I know that they, they, I mean, that would be news to me. I know. Um, I mean, a lot of, so they kind of have a separation. There's, there's FLDS fundamental, like, like Latter-day Saints and then, um, you know, LDS. And so now they, it kind of, I don't know now, nowadays it's Latter-day Saints is kind of what they want to be called. Right. Right. I mean, whatever Mormons, uh, none of it's really inflammatory, you know, um, but they I could def- see the FLDS pushing for that. Yeah. The F- I mean, I kind of always wondered, um, how homeboy on sister wives, there's a whole reality show oh, on no. this, um, mm. sister wives, how they 
are not getting prosecuted, right? So I, I think it's uh, one of those laws that are on the books that's just not really enforced. I think the reason why is because all those are clearly adults, you know? And so like the, you can't fish while sitting horseback, like one of those types of laws that no one enforces. Right, yeah. right, right, right. But these, these uh, see the problem with Warren Jeffs, by the way, I think the reason why your wife likes that so much is because Warren, my last name and Jeff, Jeff yeah. right. So there's the fascination <laughs> yeah. angle, yeah, yeah. but, um, I mean, whenever you get into sexually abusing children, that's when it starts to be a problem, right? That's probably yeah. right. I think if you have three wives, I don't know, people might just feel bad for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The whole, the whole child sex abuse thing ruffles feathers. Go right, figure. Yeah. Right. Why does it, I swear, can you, can you have a cult that doesn't involve that sex? Yeah. Does it exist? No, oh, there was the, the yoga, David Koresh, all those cults, the, the, uh, Jim Jones. Uh, there's always some version of the leader gets to have sex with everybody's wives. Yeah. There's and, another you know, one. <clears throat> have you seen, uh, Matt, have you watched, um, <clears throat> excuse me, wild, wild country on Netflix? No, oh, boy. I haven't I've seen it on there. Is it good? Dude, that is. Have you watched that? No. So good. You need to watch it tonight. And I promise you, you won't stop watching it. Mm. What's amazing about that is that it happened in our country. And no, and I never knew about it. Like it kind of happened when it was in the 80s when we were younger. But I'm like, dude, this happened. How is this possible? It is so Don't spoil good. this one. I'm not, I won't say a word about it. Wild, wild country. Just watch it. Word. There's my plug, but I mean, I just don't understand. Like you could have a pretty successful cult. If you just didn't start having sex with everybody, it seems like that's the, <laughs> that's where things start to go awry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Keep it in your pants and you got your calming forever. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to make like a instruction manual, but yeah. I mean, it seems like there's, there's room for improvement, you know? Yeah. I don't know. So <laughs> yeah, but Ooh. she, she might be looking at that. There, there's another, um, there's a, on that too. If you guys ever watch, uh, um, some of our LDS people might hate me for this, but, uh, there's a show that was on HBO called big love. That was a drama though. Um, with, uh, Bill Paxton, RIP. Uh, and he, he was a guy who, um, had three wives and it, it, tells you a lot about the um, FLDS stuff and, and just learn about uh, LDS religion in general. That's, it's a good watch. It's yeah. a good series. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I, it got me just wondering if you guys, like, do you guys work, <clears throat> like, have you worked with Mormons that have been prosecuted for polygamy or for having child brides or I, is that I've, something you guys deal with? I've had clients that picked up a sex offense that happened to be polygamous um, but th their index offense, their referring charge wasn't anything to do with that. But we've we've had some guys come through the program that have been in some of the FLDS um, uh, cults, I guess. I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's a like and I for me, it's only ever been guys that were in like groups that I ran. So I was never really able to get like the full on story. What about mm -hmm. you? Have you ever you ever had anybody in? Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like a client. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> we had, a. so, um, you'll, I mean, obviously I won't use his name. Uh, kind of well-spoken dude, really long hair. He was at Fremont for a long time. Okay. never mind. So you would know him if I, if I, but, uh, yeah, he was in, he was in, uh, our, our, um, 
our uh, groups and he was my individual client and um yeah he so he would talk often about being you know part of the like growing up in that and um some of the sexual abuse that he experienced as a result of that and then some of the sexual abuse that he was encouraged to like be a part of um for him though it was weird because because he grew up in a he so he grew up in a place called Colorado City that was the name of the of the place and um for him he never really knew much different than that and so like he never categorized a lot of what was happening as sexual abuse and so th- this is we have this occasionally um but this is kind of a more um local uh, issue that we we start to see in that I mean, we've had guys from, we had a guy from Somalia. I don't, he was over at our region three program. And, um, so in Somalia, the, the age of consent, sexual consent, I think is like 12 or or it doesn't even exist. Right. Right. So, um, and over there, it kind of, it kind of makes sense in terms of procreation because they have, you know, I don't know, you know, in terms of the percentage of individuals who have AIDS and who are dying as a, or malaria or whatever else is happening, you know, um, it's like a life expectancy thing, right? Their, their life expectancy is pretty low. And so like in terms of procreation, it's kind of like you gotta, you know, get it while the getting's good. And so, um, in terms of like having a 20 something year old guy, um, having sex with and, and, you know, marrying or procreating with a girl who's in her teen years, it's just not unheard of over there. Like it's, it's pretty run of the mill. And so Mm -hmm. he came here on a refugee status. And I mean, when you, when they go to refugee places that, that are offered, you know, they don't focus on, okay, let me go over the sexual, you know, abuse laws of this country. They, they really encourage them about getting jobs and getting connected to, you know, making sure that they have enough food and all the rest of it. And so, um, his offense was that very thing. He was, you know, 20, 20, I think 25 and his victim was 14 and over there totally normal. And he would never know the difference. And he kind of acknowledged, well, I should have known, you know, he was cool about it. He said, I should have known this is a different country. I should know the laws. And we see that, um, with some of these in this case with my client who was from the FLDS, that was his same kind of similar uh, thing that he dealt with because he, mm-hmm. you know, didn't really know much difference in terms of his, his development. So yeah, kind of a weird set of circumstances in terms of the motivation behind their offenses too. So it'll be a low risk of low risk to reoffend because it's just an education piece almost. And I guess there's probably more complex than that, but yeah, I mean, well, low risk to sexually reoffend certainly um, in terms of a reoffense, like just a general reoffense. And um, cause the, the tricky part with these guys is when they come in at a young age like that, and then they become acculturated with the criminal justice system here in America. They learn just criminal shit. Like they, they have like, it, it, especially if you go to prison, like you or jail, you have to learn criminal stuff to get by. Right. And so that actually in a lot of ways kind of increases the likelihood of a, a non-sexual crime in the future. So because of their age, because they're male, 
Um, if they've never been, you know, married, um, they had any part like long-term relationships. If the victim was unrelated, if, if it was a one night stand that they had sex with the victim in less than 24 hours, all of those are, are, you know, statistically validated risk factors that increase the likelihood. So depends, I guess, is the answer. Like, yeah, I, I get what you're saying though, Matt, like, cause it, <clears throat> if, if, your assumption, if you're, you know, a person from another country or another culture like FLDS, that everything you're doing is is just fine. That, that it, it just it just seems like again anecdotal, but it just seems like their motivation for offense is going to be wholly different than somebody that's known that that type of sexual activity is wrong right out of the gate. You know, it's it it seems like less predatory. I don't know it it. I mean, because Mace is right kind of on like the aggregate big picture, but it just it does seem like on an individual level, somebody that um, it's like, a you know, coming from a different culture to where it's normed, um, especially if it's like, a, you know, a really conservative kind of squared away type of guy that doesn't have a whole lot of criminal history and um you know, he's operating under the assumption that it's par for the course to have a child bride. It, it, once they learn the law, if they get on board with it again, you would, you would think that, mm-hmm. yeah. Cause it, they, they wouldn't have like the same deviant interest. I don't know. It's uh but I think that's kind of what you're asking. Yeah. And I'm kind of thinking, cause <clears throat> I work a lot more with victims and, you know, I've got quite a few clients who've been victimized their whole life, know nothing different. Um, and the unlearning of that takes a long time of like, oh, I actually have autonomy over my own body. Like I'm, I'm actually allowed to say no to people touching me. Right. And that's just like, like mind blowing for them. Um, so there's like the wiring isn't there almost of boundaries and healthy touch. And so I I guess I'm just trying to look at it from the opposite perspective. Yeah. What kind Um, of, what what kind of age range are you talking with? uh, the, the victims of sexual abuse that are like, I'm thinking of clients like that are adults now that mm-hmm. were victimized throughout their whole childhood mm-hmm. and teen years. And then they ended up getting into abusive relationships as adults. What never are, really go ahead. Just never really learning about boundaries about, you know, um, that that's not appropriate. That's not okay. That I can say no, that consent is a thing. What would you say are the, uh, um, the most troublesome symptoms that your clients are dealing with as, as adult. Uh, so these are, they were victimized throughout their childhood, maybe into adulthood. And Mm -hmm. how are they manifesting that? Like, what are the symptoms that you see the most problems with? I guess if we kind of looking at like a DSM, it would be a lot of PTSD, a lot of dissociation. Um, those would be, so a lot of like a lot of anxiety, hyper arousal, um, depression as a result of that suicidal. Yeah. Yeah. Which like you said, I mean, those type of symptoms, it, it it's, it's really kind of fascinating because on the perpetrator side, um, especially when I was doing domestic violence stuff, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what your guys's opinion is on this. Um, I mean, do you guys ever think it's a good idea to treat perpetrators and victims like concurrently? I not guess, the same, not the uh, same perpetrator and victim. I'm saying, can you, can you have enough 
I don't know, professional and mental boundaries to treat both populations. I, so the same, like the victim of, so treat the perpetrator that offended against that. Oh victim. no, I would never encourage no. that. It, it, I'm saying you're like, saying. I'm saying you on your caseload, on you your have, caseload, you, you have, have some perpetrators and then some victims, yeah. not necessarily of the same offense. Just right. <clears throat> can you have the mindset to treat perpetrators? And so That's like, a, I mean, this yeah. might be a blind spot for me. I think I could, but I mean, I, I do yeah. not. I mean, I don't work with a lot of sexual offenders. I have a few justice involved clients. And uh, this is actually a question I was going to ask you guys. Cause I'm a lot of my training is in kind of person centered therapy, um, humanistic model, you know, look, not labeling, looking at, you know, trauma, history, attachment, good old um, Rogers stuff. Yeah. And one of the big, yeah. You can't say yeah, you can't do a hard G or Ro- the, no, that's a soft. No, Roger. 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 Yeah, well, hold on. Jur. That's a soft G. What's Jur? It's a lame G. That is a lame G. Rogerian. Yeah. yeah. You can't say Rod. Got like, a lame G. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so, Carl Rogers. Yeah, there you good go. Guy. Okay. Good guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah we got you. It, Sorry to cut you off. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it, um, I've been struggling a bit because one of my justice, like he's recently out of jail. I've been working with him for a long time before he went to jail. But one of the big pieces of Rogerian therapy <laughs> is unconditional positive regard. Right? Yeah. And he's telling me about like some crazy shit in jail, um, like attacking prison guards, right? And ending people's careers and gang stuff. And, you know, my kind of basic skills is to, you know, be compared, like caring and compassionate towards people. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me who, you know, the group home worker from the yesteryear, right? The part of me that's like, oh, I was a staff that worked, you know, with um, offenders. And I'm kind of getting pulled into that direction of like sympathizing for the jail guards, but also trying to be present and attuned to him and what he was going through and how he got treated, you know, mistreated by the jail guard. And that's why it happened sort of thing. So it's like, I'm conflicted internally as I'm treating him. Um, Hopefully this is making sense, but I think that's kind of what you're saying, Mace of like, can you treat victims and offenders? I, I do, but I do kind of struggle with, with that. Yeah. I, um, I, and I guess it would be, can you treat victims and offenders? I should have qualified that a little bit better treating victims and offenders like out of kind of the same population dynamics. In other words, you're treating perpetrators of sexual abuse and concurrently treating victims of sexual abuse, obviously not the direct victims I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, mm-hmm. I thought about this and I, I just say, I don't think I could do it well. I think I could do it, um, but I I don't think I could do it well. And the reason why is I think what you're describing, Matt, um, because to treat the perpetrators, you definitely have to have a a pretty like a different mindset. It's not excusing their behaviors because that's we never want to do that even to them. Right. Um, But with victims, it's, it's a little bit different approach because with victims, I you know, when I've heard some of the so I'd be doing domestic violence classes and some of the ways that the guys were describing this was they were describing targeting, um, you know, in kind of a predatory fashion, uh, you know, females that had a lot of the symptoms that you just described with some of your clients, man. And the re and I asked him, well, why is that? 
And they said, well, because, you know, they, they tend to, like you said, they, they don't set boundaries. They tend their value in the relationship is, you know, um, I'm going to put myself out there sexually to you. And then as a result of that, you know, um, then I get my immediate needs of companionship met, even if it's really toxic or whatever, um, abusive and all the rest of it. And so, those guys said, well, yeah, it's, it's kind of like if I met a girl who stood up for herself and had her shit together and, you know, wasn't putting up with my nonsense, I wouldn't even spend time to try to do that because there's so many other, you know, people that are just so vulnerable that, that I can take advantage of that. So then yes. I would teach a class like that. And then not, but a day later, I'd be doing a survivor's class. And, you know, some of the, some of the girls were like, mm. man, am I, am I just like a magnet for assholes? And I'm like, Kind of, you know, like, of course I would never say that to them, but then I, I was like, the guy just told me that everything that you're dealing with is exactly what they're targeting. And so what would you say to her then? I don't know. Yeah, because would, ultimately, like, I think what you want for victims is you don't want them to be experiencing those symptoms such that it leads to impairment in their life. Right. And the only way to do that is for them to kind of get over this trauma as a historical event, which is kind of why we call it, you know, not victims class or abuse, which is survivors class and them start to reframe the way they view themselves Mm. and understand that, yeah, I can set boundaries in a relationship and my worth to another person is much more than just, you know, my body is a a vehicle for sex or whatever it is. Um, but getting them there is a little bit more difficult, but you can't just say that you can't just say, well, get over it toots. Like, I mean, you know, that's not going to work. You feel like you had to have a hard time. Like, cause, cause I get, I've, I've, I've had the same types of interactions with dudes that have pretty well in a moment of honesty and clarity, pretty well said that, you know, they look, they look for kind of boundaryless girls that throw uh-huh. themselves out there sexually. So, and I mean, and I know you know how to deal with guys like that, but it, would you, you're saying internally you'd have a hard time then going and running a survivor's course and empowering the women and <clears throat> like helping them, I guess, develop, you know, assertiveness skills or something? Um, so on a superficial level, no, I know all the techniques and I know what to do, Mm. um, in terms of like, so Jeff and I, you know, we use a lot of person centered stuff, but that's really with our motivational interviewing techniques. So, and you know, that's not therapy. That's more of a style, but it's a style of delivering what, what we do because we're cognitive behavioral therapists. So cognitive behavioral therapy, doesn't really care about much about your feelings other than to say that they're exaggerated or inaccurate. Right. Which again, you don't want to really tell that. I mean, you can, but you don't want to bring that up in that way. So we use motivational interviewing to get them there. So it's kind of like, I've always compared it to, uh, capsules of medicine. You know, if I break open one of those capsules, the powder on the inside tastes like hell. So the capsules designed to get the medicine to your body to help. So MI is like the capsule, the medicine is the CBT. Mm, sure. Yeah. So that helps me kind of frame that when I'm, how I'm using it, um, helps people understand what they mean by a style. But, uh, I guess what I'm saying is, so yes, I could do it superficially, but really getting down to kind of what Matt's question was like, we know that's the thing I think that we do really well is, and this isn't, I don't know where this came from. And I don't know if you and I collectively came up with this or I read it in a book somewhere, but we describe it as a dispassionate compassion for the the perpetrators that we work with. And I mean, all that is, is exactly what it sounds like is that we can show compassion toward this person that says, you know, despite 
the fact that they have committed, you know, abhorrent offenses, um, we show dispassionate regard for those, but compassion to, well, what are the circumstances that somebody would have to be in to do that? Like I always challenge clinicians Mm -hmm. I work with, just do a thought experiment. Like, of course you'd never sexually abuse somebody, but I'm just saying under what circumstances could you see yourself doing that? Most people don't want to do that, but I'm, and, and that's fine. You don't have to, we can all agree that you'd have to be under some pretty desperate circumstances where that starts to make sense in your head. And I say, okay, you don't have to start exploring it or, or sympathize with that. I'm just saying that that person was there at one point or another where it made sense to them. And as a result of that, they deserve some compassion towards that state of mind such that we can treat them so they don't do this, this horrible thing again. Well, it's going to make you a more effective therapist when you do that, because what people want to do is when they think about sex offenders is they want to make them the monster. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and again, that, that, and that is easy and it's, it's a simple way to look at it, but it's, it's a bit intellectually lazy. If you, do the thought experiment that you're talking about. Like it sucks to consider it's not fun, but when you can even almost kind of approximate a way to mentally go there, then all of a sudden you've humanized the client Mm -hmm. and they're not a monster anymore, which means that, okay, they are a person, which means that you're going to be better able to actually identify what makes them tick, which means you're going to help them with risk management and make them safer in the long run. Mm -hmm. So for your dude, Matt, um, Mm -hmm. your client, um, you're kind of caught with the internal battle of like, okay, I want to be here for this guy, this uh, former inmate. Um, but the way he sabotaged these guards careers, he's a complete asshole. And how do I, how do I reconcile that? And I, I, I think that just you, you answered it kind of in the way you posed the question to us and that you're self-aware enough to realize that you're having a reaction to that dude. And rather than denying it to yourself, you're controlling for it. You're like, yeah, I think this guy's a dick, but I'm his therapist. I need to be there for him. So that gives you a chance to create that buffer in your head so that you can still, I guess, distance yourself from thinking of your buddies that got that, or like, I guess, I mean, you didn't know them, but like the types of people that get thrown under the bus by this guy, but just, it's just, it's just, it's that self-awareness. I think that you just showed that you have rather than denying. And I like all my clients equally and they're all great and they're all perfect. Like not you're lying to yourself. If you say that, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. That actually the, all of that helps me reconcile it. And I think I naturally kind of look at prison, like, like survival. Like it's just pure survival Mm -hmm. and reputation is a big part of survival and attacking a guard probably gets you some pretty big, pretty big uh, street cred. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, So that's kind of the lens I try and look at it through. Like this guy's just trying to be top of the food chain. Right. Um, I, I never excuse that behavior. I just recognize it that because like you said, Matt, like you said it well, it, it's it's a reality in which they live that unfortunately, I, I mean, it's easy to just jump in and say, well, that's criminal thinking. I get it. But it's not it's it's more survival techniques in there. You know, like if somebody uh, if somebody, you know, challenge you you to a fight in there for whatever reason, you know, which I mean, nobody does. I challenge you to a duel, <laughs> but it could be, you know, for whatever thing. Um if you don't, I mean, you might lose, but if you don't stand up for yourself, there's going to be major problem. problems for you. And so, you know, 
I know everybody's like, well, you know, be the better man. Like, no, not like, in prison. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, you know, I, so I, I, if they take your tater tots, you better smash them in the face. Right. I try to, empath- <laughs> I mean, it, I don't think it's, I've never had it extreme enough cause I've been curious with some of my clients and I've never had it extreme enough where, you know, you show up there and it's like, okay, first day on the yard, bro. You find the biggest dude and you bite his nose off or whatever. Yeah, I've never, advice. yeah, I've never yeah. heard about that. And that's like in movies and stuff, yeah. but, um, definitely like there are hard decisions they have to make. And, and, you know, unfortunately, yeah, it probably does. But that's what I'm saying is some of those kind of to, to that question way back was some of those otherwise low risk offenders that we, deal with on a pretty regular basis become high risk offenders because of their involvement in the criminal justice system and their saturation within this like, you know, criminal minded, uh, environment that they have to adapt to. And they're very adaptable and resilient, but I mean, that's just to go along to get along, but I'll say how much, go ahead. I was just gonna say, they're all probably leaving more traumatized than when they came in. eh? Yeah. It seems like it. Yeah. Yeah. PTSD's, uh, pretty diagnosable for a lot of guys coming out of prison. They won't I mean, admit that. Yeah. They, I mean, they, how many of them, like the Walmart thing? Oh yeah. Dude. Yeah. Like, like, like going into Walmart and well, some dudes have been down for 20 years at a time. So, I mean, they don't even know what a smartphone is, you know, and Walmart trips them all out. Yeah. Where they, they, they're like, wait a minute, I can go to like my, uh, they have Walmarts in Canada. Yeah. Okay. That's worldwide. Uh, you can camp, you can camp in Walmart parking lots here. Oh, yeah. You, you can you can do that here too. Yeah, yeah. You can do that as long as it's like an RV type thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you uh, they would go to the self checkout that they have in Walmart there, and um and yeah, you couldn't uh, like they couldn't fathom that you could check yourself out. They thought it was stealing. It's Walmart. that. It's the abundance of choice. You know, in prison, you have your little Bob Barker brand toothbrush, and then. Like there might be one other choice. So it's like the abundance of choice. It, it overwhelms them. Their anxiety spikes. I've had clients more than one client over the years. They get, they'll, they'll get their cart full and they'll get so overwhelmed with the abundance of choice. They'll just leave their cart and leave the, um, they get tripped out that people will walk behind them in the aisle and brush them. They're like on guard, ready to fight. And like, these guys are just having these, like, again, like hypervigilance, uh, you know, like flashbacks from prison, uh, intense anxiety, wanting to avoid places like Walmart is it's like checks the boxes right down the line, you know? And, uh, I've told, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's something that's it, it, first couple of times I heard this fear of Walmart. I just thought it was kind of like a, you know, it was kind of humorous, but it, it's a thing. Like a lot of dudes have this. Yeah. They, are you saying checks the boxes as far as like diagnostic yeah, criteria? Oh, yeah, okay. Okay. Right. That makes sense. Lots of sleep issues too. Eh? Oh yeah. 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 They, they, it's for the weird, weirdest reasons though. They always say their bed is too comfortable. So I'm like, mm, wait, right. what? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> there, there, there's not someone screaming and another person crying throughout the night. I can't, I can't sleep with all this quiet. Yeah. 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 Well, one of the weird, like one of the things that kind of blew my mind working with some justice involved clients is, you know, I kind of think of traumatizing things from prison being like assaults, gang beatings, getting shanked. Right. Mm-hmm. For, for one Rape. of my clients, like, yes. Um, witnessing murder, all that kind of stuff. But for one of my clients, isolation was the worst of it. Um, That's pretty consistent. 
an exorbitant amount of time uh, in isolation. Um, and that is what messed him up the most. That, that, yeah, I, man, I don't even know how to feel about that because like institutions will say that they need, you know, SAG, ad SAG, whatever, um, PI, whatever the institution, they, they, they say they need it to govern unruly uh, inmates. They need something to kind of be when you're in trouble within a prison. But, but yeah, as far as like the psychological effects, you know, you, your anecdotal example matches a lot of mine. And I think a lot of research shows that that's uh, like a kind of torture in a way is that, that social isolation, but then, and so again, it's, it's, it's easy for me to feel some compassion for the inmate that spends, you know, months on end in the whole, but then it's like, you talk to corrections officers and you hear the types of things that these dudes are doing and like the, the safety concerns that get brought up and why they need to put them in these situations. And I, I, I I'm left stuck wondering how to feel about it, but I I've seen what you're talking about, but um, what did you notice with your client as far as like, how did, it's easy to understand how it affected him in prison, but did he carry into that, any of that trauma from the hole out into uh, life on the street? Mm-hmm. Big time. Yeah, yeah. He's, he definitely has PTSD. Um, he witnessed multiple murders, um, tons of time in, in segregation, um, lots of, lots of assaults getting assaulted. Um, and yeah, he, he struggles a lot now. Um, and then just getting out of jail, not being able to get a job, right. And not being yeah. able to have a purpose and everything that goes with that just kind of fuels all of it. And and then you leave with all these beefs too. Um, and then you're always looking over your shoulder and, and there's a lot of gang stuff here too. Um, so that's, that's an ongoing thing that, you know, keeps them anxious. Right. So you never really feel safe, I guess, even leaving a lot of the time. So yeah, so it's com- it's complex. There's gangs in Canada. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, North Side. Well, I know the truckers; they have yeah. their own gang, right? Yeah. <laughs> did you, Freedom fighters. Did you have to? Yeah. Did you have to deal with any of that, dude? I mean, off topic. Yeah, but- like I'm a border city, so our borders were shut down. Really? Uh, highways? Yeah. What was, was that like? It was a pain in the ass. To be honest, it's hard not to feel resentful. Like I'm coming to work, working my balls off throughout the whole pandemic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can't even get to work because the highway is closed. Yeah. How did you get to work then? Just take some back roads. Oh, okay. It wasn't, you know, didn't wreck my day, but. Well, that's, that's what I kind of, it's cool. It's, it's, well, it's always, I don't know. It's always helpful to hear hear the other side of that. Cause here in America, I'll tell you like. Um, the, a lot of the stories that were propagated about that were, you know, that your, your, uh, Trudeau, uh, was a dictator and, and, you know, um, and of course he was just enforcing things that he didn't have the right to. And, you know, people were standing up for these truckers and donating to the cause and everything. And I'm like, there was always a piece of me that thought about what you just said. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Okay. What about the Matt Barnes? If, of the if world? they're shutting down, <laughs> I was like, if they're shutting down the highways, like how does that help people who are just trying to 
go to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I get you're standing for this and you don't want to get vaccinated yeah, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, Fight but, for your right or whatever. Well, right. My yeah. whole thing was, my whole thing was uh, like that, whatever, whatever gets me back to work. I don't care. What do you want me to do? I'll, I'll, I'll do. Yeah. Do you want me to, do you want me to sew a penis to my arm? Okay. I'll do that. Like wh- whatever <laughs> yeah. you want. So yeah. Can yeah. I get back? Yeah. Can I just get back to work? Like that's all I cared about. And so when I heard that, I was like, Okay, I get it, and I get how you're distanced from it. You're in America, and you can rah-rah those guys. But if I was there, I'd be pissed that I couldn't go to work. Dude, I, I get, like, inconceivably mad when somebody is, like, slowly strolling across the crosswalk while I'm waiting to turn left. Ooh, and when they you look know? at you? Yeah, and they just, yeah, they just look at Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you better put a kick in your step, son. You know? But, yeah, so I, I can't even deal with those people, let alone... Yeah. Like weeks. How long did that go on for, Matt? That was like it felt like a month that went on for oh, two okay. solid weeks where it was all all we heard about in the news. Wow. And I you <laughs> know, I kind of I think it's cool when people rally together for like a common cause. Yeah. Like I'm I'm all about that. Um, but the yeah, the flip side of it, and especially for people in Ottawa, like the fumes, the horns honking all the time, the partying, like the disruption, the blocking, like blocking ambulances from getting to the hospital. It's like, Oh like really? We're dying here. Oh, and wow. uh, like the shelters and just the chaos. Um, I mean, Trudeau did not handle that well. We, he evoked the emergencies act, which is just unheard what of is absolute train wreck on all sides. The because again, I, I like, I see what you're saying too. It's like, it is, it is. Yeah. You know, stand up for what you believe in fight for your right. All that beastie boys, you know, but, but, but like, yeah, I'm sure that's what they had in yeah, mind. You know, you know, they played that they were blaring that got a fight for your right. But yeah, it's like, if you're trying to make a dent in Trudeau, if you're trying to inconvenience Trudeau, like, that's not really doing it. It's, it's, it's inconveniencing you, like dudes like you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, the annoying thing too, was like they, at least in Ontario, they had kind of at some point through that whole thing announced like, okay, we're ending masks. Here's kind of the deadline here. And then I think it was, I don't know when it was, but the whole Ukraine thing happened. Right. And then it's like, okay, are you guys really, you guys are really think that you don't have any freedom. And people in Ukraine are, are literally getting bombed. Dude. Like, and that's when I lost all sympathy for that cause. Yeah. Like, perspective. Okay, you, got, you have to wear, you have to wear a mask in Walmart and you feel like your freedoms are taken away. Right. It, it's crazy how th- something like a, 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 an actual war can kick off to put things back in perspective. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's damn. equally encouraging though. Um, because I'm like, wow, we don't really have that many problems to deal with. Yeah. It's it, like, it is like, man, like we, we think things are so awful here. It's like, my God, like that those people are dealing with an invasion. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like masks are annoying. And, and, uh, and I think here, do they still have masks up there? Uh, Matt, um, we, uh, Right now, we're we're we don't have to wear masks. Oh, cool! Because we, yeah. I, I think, everywhere down here, Utah kind of didn't do any. Like they had two weeks of this stuff. Was, yeah, it and was. Then they stopped. Utah doing wasn't so bad. Utah's like, yeah. see ya. Yeah. So, um, yeah. and then when they tried to enact it, like a mayor tried to put it in place, the legislator like overruled her and said, "Nope, you can't make rules like that." <laughs> so, but it it I was like, that's that's a so mask is a minor annoyance. But then I loved people that said. Oh, it's just the first, like the slippery slope people, you know, that's just the first step. Next thing you know, and I'm like, okay, well, what's the next, I was like, 
it's pretty reasonable. I, I get it. Like it's dumb and you might have some science that says it doesn't work and maybe they're not paying attention to that right now. Okay. It's going to come around, but I was like, it's a minor annoyance is what it is. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like it's not in it, but I was like slippery slope. Like, okay, what's, did it ever go beyond that? Like, where did it, where did it go? Maybe in California, there was some weird stuff that happened, but here, nothing like, like I didn't notice anything. The, the coastal States got a little weird. Yeah. But yeah. Like know. I felt bad for some people like getting their restaurants and stuff shut down. But I, that, right. Weird situation yeah. altogether. But yeah, Obviously, with Ukraine and rubbles, we don't have many problems. Right. So, okay. (laughs) So, hey, I was going to ask you, you mentioned in um, like, uh, because I, you know, when it comes to Jeff and I, we don't do, I don't, do you have any clients who are like survivors right now, victims, anything like that? They're perpetrators that were victims at one point. Okay. If you count that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But no exclusive. No. Okay. So um, you mentioned in the email leading up to this, Matt, as we were kind of discussing content and stuff, because um, you do, you're an EMDR practitioner, yeah? Mm-hmm. So I was wondering um, what your thoughts were. You meant you mentioned uh, the use of like uh, psychedelics for purposes of treating trauma. And mm-hmm. the, I mean, I know very little about it. Um, I haven't looked into it. Um, but what what I do know is, is that... Um, well, I don't know. Do you know? Well, first of all, since you're kind of more in the victim realm, I mean, what do you know about it? And what are your thoughts about that? Psychedelics? And, yeah. Like, of, with EMDR, or just totally separate from EMDR. To uh, treat. Yeah, just treatment, treatment of PTSD in general. Yeah, yeah. I could talk a little bit about my experience. Maybe I'll start with EMDR because that's kind of been um, the main modality I've used in my career. Um, the whole... Yeah. So, well, and it, I don't even know where to start with it, but the whole premise behind EMDR mm-hmm. is this adaptive information processing model that essentially like how we look at the brain is that it's oriented towards health. Um, and that through our life, you know, we go through a lot of experiences and our brain will just naturally digest those experiences and store them away properly. Um, and the, I guess the premise with EMDR is that trauma interrupts that process and things get kind of stuck. Um, so the EMDR kind of case conceptualization is that these traumatic events have affected um, people's neurological, like neural networks. And so when we're talking about like um, the survivors group that you run, uh-huh. right, like their their trauma of being abused has affected their current behaviors, but it's also affected them emotionally and their whole belief system about themselves. So probably a lot of those survivors feel very defective, um, like they're not good enough, um, like they don't matter. Um, and so they get their needs met through sex or being promiscuous or whatever that is. So EMDR goes in to try and find the roots of where those beliefs developed um, so, so we're trying to unblock information that was, has kind of like jammed up that, that, um, adaptive information processing network in the brain. Okay. So when you say your brain is oriented towards health, the adaptive, um, you know, the adaptive function of the brain would say that if you go through a, a normal trajectory of human development, that, um, 
you you wouldn't start basing your relationships and getting your needs met through promiscuous behavior. You wouldn't yeah. um, emotionally regulate by using drugs. Um, you you wouldn't mm-hmm. seek out kind of those you know uh, or or avoid. Well, you wouldn't even have the the inclination to avoid things that would trigger really harmful memories and stuff like that. The the mm-hmm. that the 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 adaptive functions have now been impaired as a result of this trauma that if unresolved will just continue to impair and, and potentially get even worse, right? So EMDR exactly. targets to undo those things and get them back to an adaptive yeah. level of functioning. Okay. Okay. Exactly. So like you know, we look at addiction like uh, uh, like a client trying to self-soothe, right? So then we try and understand like, okay, wh- what was your, uh, what developmental needs went unmet as a child? What was your relationships like with your parents? Um, so we're doing a lot of history. We're trying to understand um, their attachment history. Um, was there neglect? So with, with neglect, a lot of times they had to learn to self-soothe on their own. Um, so that, that could be where addiction could stem from. Um, so with PTSD, it's caused by the storage of disturbing information Uh in the nervous system. So that's where it sort of gets stuck with these negative beliefs. So like, you know, I'm five, my parents get divorced. I start to believe that if only I was a better kid, maybe they would have stayed together. Right. So that seed gets planted. That belief is like, okay, well, now I have to be perfect. So then I become like a high achiever. I don't do anything wrong. I just want to please my parents. Maybe they'll get back together. And then that just sort of like snowballs into probably a lot of anxiety, perfectionism, things like that. Right. So that's, you know, just one example. But, you know, I kind of think about like when I was in grade one or two, like somebody told me if I swallowed a watermelon seed, I'd grow a watermelon in my belly. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't eat watermelons for a long time. Right. But <laughs> so these like we're, we're kids when we don't have appropriate caregivers, we don't have good messaging. We don't learn. My body is my own. These are my parts. No one gets to touch them. Uh-huh. Right. Like those seeds just sprout into a lot of we call them negative cognitions. Yeah in EMDR. So there's kind of themes of negative cognitions um, that we can kind of, when we, when we work with clients, we can start to group these themes of maladaptive belief systems. So the one theme uh, that has kind of two parts is about responsibility. So this could be, um, it's my fault that I was raped or uh, I shouldn't have worn that outfit, right? I should have done something different. Yeah. Or maybe I'm weak because my dad um, beat me. Yeah. Um, So that's responsibility. So that's about action. Uh Um, But there's also a self-worth or defectiveness piece of responsibility. So I'm bad. I'm unlovable. Like a lot of your survivor clients would probably feel like I'm not good enough. Um, They get that sense of superficial self-worth through pleasing men, maybe sexually. Sure. Um, so that's responsibility. That's one huge theme, uh, shame, like core shame. We see a lot, um, with trauma, with abuse, uh, especially sexual abuse. And then there's safety and vulnerability. So, um, I'm not safe is a really common negative belief that a lot of people that have been traumatized feel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm in danger. I can't trust anybody. Yeah. Um, 
So that's another category. Then another one is control and choice. So I'm not in control. I can't trust myself. I find a lot of people that have been gaslighted. Um, they really develop a lot of self-doubt, um, insecurity in, in decisions. Matt, um, when, when you have uh, clients that, like so you're kind of going through these different potential categories, yeah. are, are, are you kind of trying to pick out some themes, some common themes <laughs> of like belief systems that you seem to see clustered together or are the clients, yeah. do, do the clients come to your office with that understanding, like, Oh, I have this perfectionism built from this need to be perfect. Cause my parents got divorced. And when I was little, I told myself this, this, like are, are clients coming to your door with that? Or are you kind of sniffing out some of the beliefs? There's a lot out. of sniffing out. All right. They'll come in and say, I'm just so anxious all the time. Right. Like I, so that's what you I get to start to do with. everything. Perfect. I have to be right all the time and I'm getting in fights at work and, and then we have to like go back and try and find where these seeds were planted. And we do that usually pretty early with the MDR, like in the training, they say in the first three or four sessions, you should have their whole attachment and trauma history from zero to now, which to me, that's backfired on me a few times, mm -hmm. um, especially with clients, like I mentioned, that didn't know what they went through wasn't okay. Um, you know, clients with chronic abuse that haven't really put together that, oh, like my parents aren't supposed to, you know, touch me. So when um, they're putting these timelines together, if, if, if they haven't realized this, what, how does that manifest? Like, how, how do you see like, oh, damn, this this backfired. This client doesn't realize that this isn't their fault. Yeah. What's the opposite of a breakthrough? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It would be that. It's a dissociation. Okay. Um, huh. Okay. More suicidality. Yeah. Um, nightmares, more flashbacks. Okay. You know, what's uh, kind of cool about the way you describe these things is um, the target appears to be the same with CBT, right? Because yeah, I, what you're describing in CBT, we call them core beliefs. That's it. The mm -hmm. difference is CBT doesn't care about your history. Like it, they, they, the premise is the only thing that we can change is behavior from here forward. And so mm -hmm. our discussion of the history is going to be very minimal. Instead, we target some of these themes that you discussed, which come out as cognitive distortions that then we have them, you know, we, we uh, try to address those in real time and then have those change. And the theory then is that as you start to change some of these cognitive distortions, which are brought about by automatic thinking, um, that that will nudge the core beliefs back into a more adaptive and functional way of thinking about themselves. But, and, mm -hmm. and if you start to uncover these through a theme, you bring it up to them, but never do you have to have a conversation about historical traumas. So, I mean, you can, it's not unheard of, but CBT, mm -hmm. it's not a required, it's not a, like a required ingredient, but the target is still the same though. Right. Like your method on how you get mm -hmm. there is different. I was, yeah. So this was, would be a big, that, so the way that, so in EMDR, a big piece of it is incorporating emotion and body sensation. Mm-hmm. And I talked a little bit about last episode, like the three, you know, limbic system, brainstem, prefrontal cortex. We're trying to connect those. Mm -hmm. And the way that we see things through EMDR would be that traumatic experiences disrupt the ability to use your prefrontal cortex so that we could, 
you know, clients can't access the CBT tools because their prefrontal cortex is getting getting flipped over Mm -hmm. down into their limbic system so often because of the triggers that are unprocessed. Yep. So, so so what do you do? So let's, let's say you identify that that may well be the case and, you know, CBT mm -hmm. is not really landing because they've got this block, this trauma-based block. So like, what, what is it you actually do then to try to cut through that? Sounded like an office space, type of thing. What is it that you actually do? What is it that you actually do? (laughs) Yeah. So we're always trying to get to the first experience. So I guess let's try and pull up and like, do you have an example of maybe something like a trigger that we could kind of use as an example? Yeah. Just do a cliched one. Uh, Somebody hears, somebody hears a car backfire and all of a sudden they feel like they're back in Vietnam or something. Okay. So the backfiring leads to like an overreaction. I don't know what cars are backfiring these days. (laughs) My Tesla backfired. (laughs) (laughs) So we've probably, I mean, a lot of people are stuck like up in their head. So we're trying to get them into their body. What's the feeling? What's the sensation you get? So it's probably fear, Uh right? This brings me back to the battlefield. Um, Then we're going to try and go to ideally the worst experience, of that fear of okay. that. If, if it's along that continuum of noise, like of gunfire or battle so, or. So in, in your therapy session, you then try to, to, um, through discussion, bring them back to at least, uh, uh, you know, the memory of the, the most impactful event that, that led mm-hmm. to that fear that has been triggered. You're, you're trying to guide them through that. And a big caveat of that is there needs to be good therapeutic alliance. They need to have good grounding tools um, because we need them to have one foot in the present, one foot in the past. Yeah. PTSD, they're both feet in the past, right? So we wanna we wanna develop some strategies, some coping tools to keep them grounded here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for them to feel safe to go back in their mind to the battlefield. So then we're going to find eventually over time um, the worst experience um, that, that that backfiring triggers. And it's a little bit like exposure therapy. So we find, I kind of say like, if your life was a movie, pause it at the worst part of that chapter yeah. or that scene. That's the image we want them to hold in their mind. Mm. But we also need to find a negative cognition that goes with that image. Yeah. So um, like the- and that can be really difficult. I was just going to say, so in our hypothetical example, the, the, the veteran is maybe like both him and his buddy have been captured their POWs and his buddy gets executed. That's the, the, the pop of the gun. That's the backfiring car. And his thought is that it should have been me or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay. So you have so them freeze frame their the, body getting popped and that thought. Yes, exactly. That thought is probably not the true negative cognition. It's probably like, I should have done something mm, or okay. it's my fault or hmm. Ex- explain so, that. That's interesting. So, so like what, what is it that would most likely not make that the main negative cognition and, and how do you, how do you get to what the fundamental one is? It's a good question. Um, I guess I'm trying to understand what's the, 
So another, I guess, another part of my training is an emotion focused therapy. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to identify the core um, emotion that was evoked, the core maladaptive emotion. Um, so when you think, well, like when I think about it, it should have been me. Um, like that situation, you probably there's survivor guilt typically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's kind of what you're saying, right? Like yeah. it should have been me that died. Right. Uh-huh. Um, but that, that seems, that seems like a thought that comes after the fact, not one that you'd have in, in the, the moment. moment. Yeah. So in the moment. So, so yeah, it should have been me is, is a response to the guilt that you're experiencing as a result of in this. the moment you might have the thought i'm glad that wasn't me and then felt really guilty for thinking right that. right right like you could so because because in cbt you know it, it's it's cool again because uh, again the the target remains the same like so yeah cbt always goes back to the thought right and the here and now mm-hmm. thought too again it does not care about the past we do though recognize that um you know emotions play a significant role in that and so a big an entire we have an entire module dedicated to emotional regulation techniques because we just recognize that if your emotion is inappropriate for the circumstances or it's exaggerated the the intensity of the emotion is too high that's going to cloud your thinking and then you know that that'll just result in bad outcomes either way so we we help them recognize that too, which accompanies the physical sensations to say, okay, before you start going through this process, you need to use an emotional regulation technique. But at the end, we always encourage them to come back to the thinking of the here and now to challenge whatever the maladaptive thought pattern is that's going to lead to a behavior. And then essentially what we're trying to do is adapt that long-term to say, well, my life is improving, so I'm just going to change the way that I think about things by virtue of having better outcomes currently. And EMDR, on the other hand, is kind of bringing them back to that moment in time and really changing the narrative for them. Mm-hmm. Of exactly. Saying, so it's helping them reframe that so they don't have to now look through these lenses and basing their life on these really shitty core beliefs that are leading to them out. So it's kind of you're you're working on a more fundamental level of really targeting hard the core beliefs, whereas CBT is often working on a superficial level with a trickle down effect, trying to get to like the core beliefs by, by, you know, we're going to target the here and now. And as a result of that, you're going to see better outcomes. And then naturally you're just going to change your attitude about these things because it makes more functional sense for you to do those things. So exactly. That's, that's kind of cool. Either way, the, the target is the same. Right. The emotion, like the guilt, that might be what they come in with, right? Like I, it should have been me. And then they, they sewer their whole life, right? They live in regret and punish themselves. And, and, but underneath that, like what's really adaptive, the adaptive emotion in that situation would be fear. Yeah. Right. Like you're helpless. You're held at gunpoint. So we want to get back and help resolve that that you had no control. So kind of the negative cognition would probably be, I was, I'm helpless, I'm powerless, uh-huh. um, or I'm not safe. Um, that sort of fits with that situation. So we want to help resolve that. And that's going to then resolve that survivor guilt because I had no control. I was held at gunpoint. I was handcuffed, whatever the right. case is. Right. It's a shitty situation, but I, I mean, I was completely out of control. There was a gun. There was nothing that I could have done like that. That's a pretty functional thought about that circumstance 
that you exactly. want to bring them back to. So, okay. So here's my question then, because I've never understood this. How would shrooms help any of that? I was just going to ask that. Like, I was just how would taking that. a hit of yeah. acid help any of that? Like, yeah, I would what, think that. When do we take the shrooms? You do yeah. that, and then you bring them back there. I'm like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> like, how would that it's help? It's too real. Yeah. How would, so I, yeah. do you know anything about that, Matt? Like, how, yeah, yeah, how the hell is that supposed that to help? Sure. Yeah. So, I don't know that shrooms would be the best, but um, what I understand about psychedelics is that they decrease activation in the amygdala. Okay, um, that makes sense. And the default mode network. So the default mode network is a region of the brain that fi- like lights right up when we're um, in like sort of introspective thought, when we're criticizing ourselves, when we're going through past negative experiences. The default network is just like firing. So psychedelics help to drop that down so that we get rid of that negative internal dialogue. The amygdala decreases, euphoria increases, and we can relook at memories and experiences through a different lens. So are we talking like MDMA then? Like, so yeah, this is where we, we could probably get into like different drugs. So MDMA is very effective for PTSD. And do they do like a full... I don't know, dose of it the, to the, to the degree that you get like high. Yes. Wow. Um, so, right. So not like, like micro dosing then that they have no. heard about. Okay. It's not legal yet, but so maps, um, the multidisciplinary association of psychedelic studies, they're doing a lot of the research, um, with MDMA. And from what I could see, like kind of the treatment protocols, like 10 sessions, three of them are, uh, with MDMA. Okay. Um, and they're about eight hours long. Those oh my. Holy yeah. cow. So is it a therapist yeah. who's working with you or a shaman? Two, <laughs> two <laughs> therapists, two. usually a male and a female. And are they high too? No, they're not high. <laughs> Damn they it. just had a rave. They might want to be though. I don't know. It's, it's a long time to be with yeah, somebody. They give you glow sticks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Wow. Eight hours. Eight hours. Do the yeah. therapists yeah. work in sh- like shifts? Like, or are both therapists? each other What's that? They can tag each other out, but okay. they're typically there. And, you know, it might not always be eight hours. I think that's kind of what they allot because um, they want to do some integration at the end as well. And then okay. usually at the beginning, there's kind of setting some intentions and making sure they feel comfortable and that safe. Makes sense. And, so is the, uh, is the MDA, MDMA, is that administered early on or in like the later parts of the 10 session protocol? I think it's kind of spaced out throughout. Okay. So they'll do like three or four. And I, I'm not an expert with, with this, uh, with MDMA at all. I don't have any training with it, but from what I understand, no, it's like no formal four. training. Yeah. <laughs> Plenty of recreational training. We know that. We know. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three or four prep sessions, building that, you know, rapport, do an MDMA session, do a few integration sessions, plan for the next one and then do another psychedelic session. Okay. Sort of thing. Okay. Wow. So, so yeah, MDMA is really helpful for PTSD. Mushrooms, psilocybin um, is proven really effective for, um, they're doing a lot of research with end of life distress. Wow. Okay. So people with terminal illnesses. So there's a huge existentialism, mysticism piece with mushrooms. Yeah. Um, like the people you guys might know. Really philosophical about yeah, life in it, general. Yes, and yeah. love and more connected to the earth and what's truly important in life. So they're watching movies that don't mean anything at all. And they're like, dude, you really think about the true meaning of this movie? And you're like, yeah. 
What? What? Yeah. It's Resident Evil, bro. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's yeah. basically meaningless. But evil is resident within all of us, <laughs> as is good. If you think about it. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. That, yeah. that. that makes sense, man. Because like, yeah, people that you know they're faced with their own mortality, and you know they've got three months to live, and you know they're facing this dread. And then, you know, mushrooms can, I guess, if guided by a therapist and set and setting is, is taken care of. I mean, I could see that, right? It, the, mm-hmm. the person now, I guess, comes to grips with their own death, has maybe a better outlook on it. It's because, I mean, you, it's hard to talk somebody that's stone sober into like, you're going to die in three months and it's cool. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. 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 That's yeah. And it it opens up their mind to, you know, things beyond this life and this planet, um, energy altered, you know, universes, things like that. Like it's similar with LSD, DMT, um, the, the ego, like there's ego dissolution sometimes. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I can see beyond just me. There's a bigger, maybe bigger purpose, more things for me ahead. So it can really decrease that depression, anxiety that goes with, I'm going to die soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where, where, where mushrooms are, um, are really helpful. We're actually applying for um, a research study to be a site for a study on um, microdosing mushrooms uh, for smoking cessation. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot with psychedelics with addictions as well. Yeah. Um, but we've been working with ketamine, um, which is the only legal psychedelic. Which here. is really weird. I mean, the, I know. In terms of yeah. the addictive properties of psilocybin, isn't it zero? I mean, and then it's the in safest terms, drug. Right. You can't there. overdose on it or anything. No. Like, I'm just saying, if if we could get an agreement garnered, like if we could broker a deal with opioid users and just say, look, if you stop using heroin or opiates, we will give you a lifetime supply of mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. Never Just ending. Broker a deal. Well, look, yeah. well, like, I mean, wouldn't you go for that? Yeah. Well here, I mean, my, my evidence right here is Joe Rogan. So take it with a grain of salt, but yeah. he, he talks a lot about Ibogaine being used mm-hmm. in the, in the treatment of yeah. like opiate addiction. Right. And that's, I mean, maybe a similar concept. I, I'm not sure what yeah. Ibogaine is though. Is it a root? Do we know? I believe uh, it is a root. Yeah. Um, when I was in California for that a radio conference. Yeah. Um, it was a, not a radio head pod, radio lab, radio yeah, head radio podcast. Do yeah. just play shitty music in the yeah. background? Uh, no, a radio lab podcast about Ibogaine. Mm. There's a whole thing about that, how effective it was and stuff. For addiction, right? Yeah. For addiction. Yeah. Specifically like one, addiction. One session of Ibogaine is completely eradicating addiction with some people. Wow. Um, But they're intense, like very difficult trips. Um, So when I was at that conference, there was a a vet that came up and talked about his experience with Ibogaine. He's formed this whole veterans association that's trying to fund other vets to go and get Ibogaine treatment because you can only do it in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the shitty thing about psychedelics is they're all legal. Um, so it's so difficult to access them. Yeah. Um, and it's expensive to get trained. Um, but that's side note. And he was saying like, they're like 15 to 20 hours. Wow. Yeah. And and is that in a therapist's office or 
You just wandering yep. around Tijuana? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just wander into a donkey show. Yeah. You're like, whoa. <laughs> I do feel better. I'm be- not ever using drugs again. Yeah, I feel better about myself now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No more heroin. Yeah. No, it, yeah, that's, uh, although I, I mean, I'm, no, I'm not saying the therapeutic aspect. I'm just saying a straight trade. We'll give you shrooms forever if you stop using heroin. I'd go for right. it. I'd be like, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, sure. Yeah. yeah use my tax dollars yeah. for that that sounds fine man but yeah that's i wonder if that will ever make its way into anything that we do microdosing or like actual it seems like people are opening up to the idea of legality with it i have mm-hmm. a i have a buddy that has gone through ketamine treatments for yeah. for ptsd yeah Is that, what, did he, what did he say that it didn't help him unfortunately no, no. yeah that's which kind of sucks he's war vet <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, he's tried everything, but yeah, it didn't, he actually was holding out a lot of hope, hope for it. So it was kind of a bummer, but did he have to go to Mexico for that? No, no. Oh no. Cause it's, it's, yeah, it's okay. Like right in Layton yep. or something. Okay. Was yeah. it with a therapist? I, a doctor. Um, okay. Yeah. Cause this is, this is a thing that's, it's kind of a good and bad and ugly side of psychedelics. Um, the bad I think is these ketamine, Ketamine's becoming really popular, um, but it's they're, they're, it's kind of becoming like the new like health boutique. You could go and like just get intramuscular ketamine and sit in a room by yourself, and there's no psychotherapy. Yeah, um, but you need to have in, in my opinion, you need to have psychotherapy when you're doing these medicines. Because yeah, otherwise um, it's like unguided. It doesn't have like. Well, well it seems this seems similar to that's well, true. okay. So like, think about just medication assisted treatment, right? So like if, if I'm, if I'm addicted to um, heroin, for example, and I go in and I get either Vivitrol or Suboxone or Methadone, whichever one of those, right? All of those are not designed to, I mean, those are not designed to treat addiction. Like addiction is a, is not just the substance using component, but the behavioral component and the cognitive component that goes along with it. It is that all that is doing is controlling symptoms such that you can engage in treatment meaningfully. Like our, our Bureau of Prisons contract requires that if someone's on suboxone, they have to be in therapy. Right. In yeah. Conjunction. And that should be that way. I mean, I think, I mean, I would say if, you know, even an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication, if you're taking one of those, like you're just relieving symptoms at that point. Like what about, what about yeah. the, the cognitions? or, or behavioral circumstances that led to the development of that disorder in the first place. Like right. it's not just, so yeah, you get a relief of symptoms as that treated the underlying, you know, behavioral problems that led to it in the first place. Like That's to, what I'm saying. It's like to Matt's point 100%. about someone right. taking ketamine and sitting in a room, which again, I think is what my buddy did. There, yeah. I don't okay. think there's any so guided. So he, he might, he, and, and same thing with mushrooms or MDMA, you might, experience a relief of symptoms temporarily as a result of that. Mm. Um, but any long-term change in terms of your, in terms of your relationship with the disorder in the first place, that needs to go through psychotherapy. Right. That's, you know, 100%. like that needs to be a company. And, and what I think is, is I, th- I like that those things exist. I don't think psychotherapy is the only answer because when I deal with somebody who is, you know, unfortunately, especially being a CBT practitioner, um, that's a crap in crap out system. So if the thoughts going into the system are so distorted 
by something like, you know, an addiction or depression or anxiety or PTSD or whatever it is, I'm not going to be able to make much headway unless I get symptom relief to a degree that they can start to have meaningful thoughts about their circumstances. So I'm fine, but a combination of both is usually the best medicine. Of course. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It drives me nuts here. I don't know if it's the same there, but methadone clinics, there's no treatment plan. The treatment is you take it for the rest of your life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I know that you're supposed to be on it for a hot minute, but that the, I think the treatment plan is very similar here. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they'll just kind of, as just a matter of, um, you, you just, oh yeah, oh, you, you could be on this for the rest of your life and clients, um, therefore they will not adhere to what the like clinically recommended dosage might be, which could be like 18 to 24 months. Um, mm-hmm. with accompanying psychotherapy on top of that. But they're like, wait, what? My whole life? So then they do it for like six months and then they taper and then lo and behold, they're back to relapsing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They just don't Mm -hmm. like the idea. I'll be on this for the rest of my life. Like, well, no, not necessarily. Maybe. But is it just kind of from like the methadone clinics perspective, just like a harm reduction thing? Just like, well, at least they're not taking heroin. So whatever. Like, what's the mindset behind it? What? Why don't they have more of a structured plan? So I think methadone, you don't, you don't get that high that you do from, from opiates, right? Like it, it manages the symptoms, but you're not getting, I don't think it's much getting, of a high. No, yeah. you shouldn't. Methadone is probably of the three of a methadone's probably the, um, because methadone you could, if depending on the dosage you took, because it's a synthetic opiate, you could always continue to get high if you if you so you could overdose and die on methadone, right? Whereas with like Suboxone, because there's a ceiling effect on it, like you're not you're only going to be able to get so high, and so I didn't know that yeah, so okay. so they 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 the, the idea about so like kind of how it's been described is is like uh you know imagine like one of those swinging doors, right? But there's a chain on the door, but the chain has some slack. So you can get the door open partially, but you can't open it all the way. So you feel some of the effects of it, but it's enough to take the edge off. So it, the 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 analogy sometimes is, it, it, imagine I was drinking like a fifth of Jack Daniels every day. Well, Suboxone would be equivalent to taking a shot. It's enough to take the edge off, but it's not going to get you high any gotcha. longer. Nor could you take more of it and get higher because there's a ceiling effect. Hmm. And Vivitrol has no... There's none. no psychoactive, there's no psychoactive right. properties to it whatsoever. Um, mm. Yeah. So there's, I, those it's, it's, and it, it kind of depends on severity is usually what they want you to, to base that off of. You know, if you're kind of um, Vivitrol is a really popular one because you're not getting high. It doesn't show up on a UA. So drug courts really dig it and stuff like that. But um, a lot of the best practices would say that if you're to that degree, you know, like you, I mean, you shooting, you know, three balloons a day of heroin, you probably should be on Suboxone or Methadone, would say, in terms of administering that and psychotherapy has probably the best outcomes. Right. Yeah. But Vivitrol is mm-hmm. not um, a bad, it's it's a really good drug. It's a pretty big game changer, but yeah, it's, yeah. Well, it sounds like the whole medical model in North America is just uh, a little bit short-sighted. Oh yeah. Like Pills like, and stuff. Yeah. Quick fix. Yeah. Pills and stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's funny. Um, but with the way that we're doing ketamine, so we we got trained through, uh, it's a place in London, couple, uh, about an hour from where we live. It's called the Mind Setting Institute. Uh-huh. It's a psychologist that developed this protocol. 
Um, and it's heavily psychotherapeutically based. So we, we do an initial assessment, a psych assessment, um, and typically we're screening, does this treatment resistant depression, anxiety, PTSD? So they need to have exhausted other forms of therapy, um, far, like pharmacological interventions, um, kind of done other forms of treatment and with minimal or, or no effect. So those would be typically the clients that we're taking through the program mm-hmm. um, right now. And um, then we refer them to a doctor who does a medical assessment. Um, the nice thing with ketamine is there's no contraindication. So it doesn't work on the serotonin um, level like MDMA and psilocybin do. So if you're on SSRIs, you don't feel the effects of MDMA and, and mushrooms. Really? Um, to the, yeah. Mm. Cause it, yeah. So with ketamine, you can be on SSRIs and you will still have the same effect. Um, so once they do the medical assessment, the doctor prescribes it to them one-time use. Um, we do a planning session where we're setting goals. Like what do we want to work on? So I've done this with clients that I've seen for years. And then I've done this with clients that um, are new to me. Um, so we're trying to identify like what are the biggest blocks um, to, to getting better. And those are the things that we're going to try and bring up in the psychedelic session. When the guards dropped, <clears throat> when, when they can, you know, tolerate it. Ketamine is kind of a wonder drug. And I, I like when, when I heard about ketamine being used, I was like, that's like, that's a horse tranquilizer. I know. Is what, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It always had a really bad kind of reputation around here is, I always think like of old school when Stifler gets shot in the neck, you know, yeah. or no, it's, it's Will Ferrell's character that gets shot in the neck. Yeah. 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 But then Pete, you hear like, like people talk tumors. about ketamine. Do you ever try ketamine, bro? Yeah. It's wild. Go, yeah. go down a K-hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're a good um, representative. <laughs> do you guys know about the history of ketamine? Uh-uh. The, uh, real, guys, I actually overbooked. I, I've got to, I've got to actually get going here. We should, Oh, a, you got to leave? I have a 345. What a loser this <laughs> guy is. Yeah. yeah, look at that. Oh, yeah. Okay, what, a session? Yeah. Oh, who yeah. cares? So I better drive yeah. fast. Yeah, yeah, you'll be all right. <laughs> well, yeah, that. Uh, you know what we need to do before I, I, um, we'll wrap up It here. seems like we have a lot to talk about I know. consistently. We, let, yeah, yeah, we got to have an, another get, but we got to get like a... We got to get like a social work podcast co-op going where we all get on each other's shows and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you're like our only other. I, uh, say Matt's the only I mean, yeah. we always have stuff that we want to talk about. And then but it seems like sh- short sighted of us to like not reach out more. You yeah. know? Who, who else is cool, Matt? Yeah. <laughs> you guys are it. <laughs> have you tried other places? No, I haven't. I, ha- I honestly haven't. I've dabbled in them, but I just didn't really. Uh, we should just start it, dude. We should just start it, yeah, and then yeah. and then do one of those. They have like uh, true crime podcast com- conventions. I'm like, why don't we have one of those for social work conventions? So I can get together and see all these nerds. Okay, we're, <laughs> what is it? <laughs> April. What is today? The ninth. April eighth today. April eighth. We're, yeah. we're starting the social work co op. Yeah, we'll figure it. We got to come up with a cool name for yeah. it. So. Okay, well, we'll let no, this we loser get to his stuff. here, boys. Yeah. Is that, I know, yeah. man. Yeah. Cool stuff, man. Well, hey, uh, yeah, thanks for all the help on that, on the understanding more about the trucker situation, too. Love that. So, yeah. Okay, Glad we'll, I could clear that up. We'll be in touch, man. We'll see you soon, huh? Okay, yeah, that sounds good, guys. Okay, see you, buddy. Hey, all right. See ya.
And that about does it for this episode of the Gorilla Social Work Podcast. We thank our friend from the North, Matt Barnes. Please take a moment and check out his podcast, the Social Work Me Podcast. Show him some love by subscribing, giving him a five-star rating, and sharing with a friend. You can also find us, the Gorilla Social Work Podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And dude, if you're thinking about anything but a five-star rating, yeah, I'm talking to you. Those guys and gals giving three-star ratings and four-star ratings, you guys are just phantasmagoric, kooky weirdos. Keep those keystrokes and mouse, mouse clicks to yourself, freak. Just stick with a five-star rating, subscribe, and share with a friend. We'd like to stay in chat longer, but we're lying. Good night.